Well, good morning again. I have never been particularly crazy about my voice. Now, on the positive side, I think I have kind of a soothing voice. It's the type of voice that I think put babies to sleep and adults as well, perhaps. And when you're in ministry like I am and, and you get to hold a lot of babies, I'm glad I don't have the kind of voice that sends a child screaming. But on the negative side, there are certain things when I think of my voice that I'm not particularly crazy about. One is that many years ago, a friend said that when she was listening to me talk, if she closed her eyes when I was doing a message or whatever, then my voice sounded like Piglet, the friend of Winnie the Pooh. In fact, she even gave me this as a reminder of what my voice sounded like. And the second thing about my voice that I'm really not crazy about is that my voice is in the, just the right range where if somebody calls in that doesn't know me and I answer the phone, they sometimes think that they're talking to a deeper-voiced woman instead of a higher-voiced man. And so they'll think they're talking to a Kim instead of Tim. And I find this embarrassing. Now, this doesn't usually happen in the morning when I have my morning voice. But still, when this happens, I'm faced with the question, you know, do I correct the person when they're saying yes, ma'am, and, and no, ma'am, and we have this to offer, ma'am? Do I correct the person or do I just let it go? Some of you may remember that several years ago, I told a story of an event that happened over 20 years ago when I was alone at the office at the church. Uh, the phone rang and it was somebody from the phone company and and this woman on the other end of the line, and, and I'm assuming it was a woman, but she kept saying, ma'am, ma'am, I'm calling you about this, ma'am, I'm calling you about that, and, and I wondered, should I, should I correct her? And I decided, no, I, I, I don't wanna do that, and I just kinda let it go. But as the conversation went on, I was getting more and more um, nervous about it, and I, and I was kind of embarrassed about the conversation, and I just wanted to get off the phone. The problem was that we needed the service that she was offering. It was something that we had talked about that we needed to have at the office, and so I really did want to talk with her. So what I said to her was, please call back on Monday. And so she said in response, okay, I'll call back on Monday. And then she said a very simple question, what is your name? And in that moment, I realized now I've got a problem because if I tell her my name, she's going to be all embarrassed by the fact that she thought she was talking with a woman. And before I could think about it, and by the way, if someone asks your name, you don't have to think about it. But before I could even think about it, I suddenly blurted out, Amy. My name's Amy. I couldn't believe it. Amy was our receptionist at the time. Amy was the person that she would actually need to talk to anyway. But as soon as I said it, I just couldn't believe it. Like, where did that come from? Here I had lied, and not just that, I lied in the church office, which seems almost like a double lie in some, some ways. And then she said, well, what's your last name? And I said, my last name. And then she said, spell it. And I suddenly realized, well, I, I, I think I know how to spell my last name. And I, I spelled... Amy's last name, and I think I got it right, and then I started to become afraid that she was going to ask me other questions about Amy that I wouldn't even know. I got off the phone as soon as possible, and I just sat there, and the whole conversation had been so, so painful. And then I began to worry. I began to realize that this, this woman's going to call back on Monday, and she's going to ask for Amy, 
And the first thing she's gonna say is, I'm the woman that talked to you over the weekend. And Amy's gonna say, I didn't talk to you. And the woman's gonna say, yes, yes, you did. I'm the, I'm the person who called you at three o'clock on Saturday afternoon. And, and maybe Amy would put it all together and say, well, the only person that was in the office at three o'clock in the afternoon, that was Tim. And she might put it together and suddenly I would be exposed as being a liar. And I just wondered what to do. I wrestled with myself over the issue. Maybe she would just think there was confusion or whatever, I don't know. But I decided to call her. I decided to confess what I had done. She thought, of course, it was hilarious, just really, really funny, and she readily forgave me, and I hung up the phone, and I was glad I had done this. It's always better to, to confess something before it's discovered, I think. But after I hung up with her, I was still bothered, and I realized I was having trouble forgiving myself. I, I, I tend to view myself as a person of very, very high integrity, I don't think of myself even in a, as an average integrity person. I tend to think of myself as having really high integrity, and yet I had lied, and I just couldn't believe it. I was a liar, and I was having trouble forgiving myself. Now, I think when it comes to the subject of forgiveness, uh, all of us at times tend to struggle with forgiving ourselves even if God has forgiven us. You know, Kevin last week talked about the fact that, that God has forgiven our sins, past, present, and future. But even though that's true, many times we just have a hard time forgiving ourselves. And it's important that we be able to do this for our spiritual health, for our emotional help, health. Author and theologian Lewis Meads had this to say, to forgive is to set a prisoner free and that prisoner is you. Now, he was probably talking here about forgiving somebody else, that when we forgive other people, it really sets us free. But this is also true of our own lives, that when we're able to forgive ourselves, that we're really set free. And I'm convinced that we will not make spiritual progress if we don't address this subject, if we do not learn to put those things in the past. The Apostle Paul talked about this in Philippians chapter 3. At the beginning of Philippians 3, Paul tells his story, a little bit about his background and, and his heritage and this and that. And then he had this to say in the middle of verse 13 of Philippians 3. <clears throat> he said, one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, says, one thing I do, I forget what is behind. And I press on toward that, the goal of the time when I'll finally see Christ face to face. And if we wanna be mature, we need to think in this way because focusing on the past and our failures many times will hinder us from going forward. I recognize sometimes we have to address things in the past, but as the rule of life, we need to be looking forward and recognizing we're forgiven and every day we're taking new steps as we grow in our love for and service to Christ. Now the illustration that I think Paul is using here when he talks about pressing on is that of a runner. And you're not gonna win a race if you're always looking behind you. Most of us have seen videos of runners who are doing a great job and then all of a sudden at the last minute they just look to the side for just a moment and they lost the race. And I think that can happen in our lives as well. We need to be focusing on the future. 
Now today I want to focus on the story of someone that failed in a pretty big way. And I suspect that after he failed, he struggled to forgive himself. There's some evidence in the story that that was the case. This was a guy that was so confident of his loyalty to Christ that he vowed that he would die for Christ. But before the evening was out, he ended up denying Jesus three times. Of course, I'm talking here about Peter. Now, the thing that I hope we walk away with here is this. God's forgiveness makes self-forgiveness possible. God's forgiveness of us is what makes self-forgiveness possible. The story we're going to look at here today is where Jesus recommissioned Peter. He called him back into service, and by doing so, he affirmed to Peter that he was forgiven that he could indeed move forward, that he could get past the fact that he had denied Jesus three times. Now, the story we're going to look at, the recommissioning of Peter, takes place in John chapter 21. Now, let me set the context of the story. Sometime after Jesus rose again from the dead, he visited his disciples on several occasions, and the story we're looking at is the third time he appeared to them during the 40 years that he was with them after he rose again from the dead. I suspect that this is around day 30 after Jesus rose again from the dead when the story begins. Seven of the disciples of Jesus happened to be together in one place. And Peter all of a sudden said, let's go fishing. And the other guy said, yeah, we'll go with you. Now, this is would have been expected to these guys, James and John, were actually partners with Peter in, in the fishing business. And so when Peter said, I'm going fishing, it was just natural that they said they're going too, and all the guys ended up going. And so you have these seven guys who end up fishing all night long, but they caught nothing. In the morning, suddenly Jesus shows up on the shore, but they don't recognize him because they are about 100 yards out. In other words, they're the distance of a football field away from Jesus. And so they don't recognize him. And that's where we pick up the story, beginning in verse 5 of John 21. <clears throat> Men, Jesus called to them, you don't have any fish, do you? No, they answered. Cast the net on the right side of the boat, he told them, and you'll find some. So they did, and they were unable to haul it in because of the large number of fish. Therefore, the disciple, the one Jesus loved, and that's John, said to Peter, it's the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he tied his outer garment around him, for he was stripped and plunged into the sea. But since they were not far from land, about a hundred yards away, the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire there with fish lying on it and bread. Bring some of the fish you've just caught, Jesus told them. So Simon Peter got up, hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them, even though there were so many, the net was not torn. Now, in a moment, we're going to continue this story, and we're going to read about the conversation that Jesus had with Peter, where he recommissioned him to ministry. Now, I believe that this entire story, this entire incident was all about this main one thing to communicate to Peter, Peter that he was now forgiven and that Jesus wanted to use him for his glory. What I want to point out at this juncture of the story, though, 
is that this was not the first time that Jesus had done a miracle like this, this multiplying of the fish. A similar event had happened at the very beginning of his ministry. When Jesus first called these guys to be his disciples, once again, the guys had been fishing all night long, they had caught nothing, and then Jesus called out to them and said, go out into the deeper waters and put your nets in the water. Now, there are three differences in this story. The story appears in Luke chapter five, but there are three differences that I just wanna highlight between that story and the one we're looking at here today. First of all, on the first occasion when Jesus said, cast the net into the deeper waters, Peter resisted Jesus. He said, Master, we've been doing this all night long and have not caught anything. But then he added, at your word, we'll lower the nets. On the second occasion, the one we're looking at now, they didn't even know it was Jesus, but when he said, cast your nets on the other side of the boat, they just did it readily. And I, I, suge- I, I suspect that this means that they'd grown in their faith. They had come to believe that, that, that God can do amazing things, and they just, they just did what they were asked to do. There was a second difference, though, between the two stories. In the first story, the nets began to tear from the number of fish. In the second story, the nets should have been tearing. That's the implication. 153 huge fish, and yet the common is made, but the net didn't tear. And I believe that this is clearly a picture of the fact that the church was getting ready to explode, and yet God would keep everyone, that the church would hold together, that there'd be this amazing harvest that was coming in, but that the net would not break. But there's a third difference between the stories, and I think, it's, I think it's the main point, or at least the one I want to emphasize. It was Peter's reaction to the miracle. In Luke chapter 5 and verse 8, we see how Peter responded after he saw this miracle. Let me read it. It says, when Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, go away from me because I am a sinful man. When Peter saw this miracle, he fell at Jesus' knees. He said, go away from me because I'm a sinful man, Lord. Now, I don't think Peter understood that Jesus was God at this point, but he did know he was a, a teacher and he knew that he was a prophet. He understood that Jesus knew things, that he was a prophet. And suddenly Peter became just self-aware of his sin. And he said, just get away from me because I'm a sinful man. I don't want you to see my sinfulness. Now, this is, this is what happens, I think, when we sin. It's how we feel. None of us wants to be exposed for our sin. Back in the Garden of Eden, even Adam and Eve, when they sinned against God, they hid. They didn't want to be seen for their sinfulness. And so Peter, on the first occasion, became self-aware, I'm a sinful person. I love what Jesus said to him, though. He said, don't be afraid. From now on, you'll be catching people. From now on, you're gonna be fishing for people. Don't be afraid. In other words, Jesus told him all the way back then, three years earlier, I know you're a sinful person, but I can use you. That that I have plans for your life. And it must have been so encouraging for Peter. Now, I suspect that, that Jesus had the same thing in mind with the second miracle. Peter, of course, had failed the Lord. He had denied the Lord three times, even calling down curses upon himself. I do not know the man. 
And now he was seeing Jesus. And I imagine he was fully aware of his sin. One thing to realize though, you know, Jesus' opinion of us is the only one that matters. Again, my takeaway here today is God's forgiveness makes self-forgiveness possible. If we are aware that we're truly forgiven by God, and I think this second miracle is about that, to show Peter that I know you sin, but I can still use you. You're still useful to me. You can still be a leader. I imagine Peter even thought, well, I can serve you, Christ, but I certainly can't be a leader. But Jesus had a different message for him. Let's continue the story, though, in verse 15, going back to John 21. We read, when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said to him, you know that I love you. Feed my lambs, he told him. Now, let me stop for a moment. But scholars have debated for centuries really what the word these refers to when Jesus said, do you love me more than these? And, and three of the best ideas are, number one, that the these refers to the, the boats and the, the nets and really the fishing and all of that, that what Jesus was saying, do you love me more than all this stuff? Do you love me more than all these things? And, and that's possible, that what, that's what Jesus was saying. You know, will you set that aside to become a fisher of people? Uh, there's a second possibility. I don't think this one is likely, but there's a second possibility that what Jesus was saying is, do you love me more than you love these? Pointing to the other six guys that were sitting there. Do you love me more than you, you love these? And I, I don't think that's the case, but it's a possibility. And then the, the third possibility, and I think it, it might be the right one, that maybe he was saying, do you love me more than these guys love me. And I think this is a possibility because again, I think Jesus was calling Peter to a certain level of leadership in the church that was about to be birthed. You know, when we read this story of Jesus talking to Peter, most of us get in our minds that it was just this private conversation that the two of them were having, but I'm convinced all the other guys were there too. All of them were aware of the fact that Peter had denied the Lord and now I think Jesus wanted to reestablish the fact that Peter was someone that he could still use despite that he had failed. Do you love me more than these? By the way, regardless of what it means, regardless of what the these refers to, I think this is a question we all need to ask ourselves. Do we, do we love Jesus more than whatever the these is? Uh, do you love Jesus more than your career? Do you love Jesus more than your family or your friends? Do you love Jesus more than your things? Do you love Jesus more than whatever these might be? Because this is the thing that matters. Jesus said we need to love him even more than our father and our mother. And this is the kind of commitment that he's looking from us to love him in this kind of way. Now, I think this story is giving Jesus or Peter an opportunity to reaffirm his love for Jesus. But let's continue reading the story. We read in verse 16, a second time he, Jesus, asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, he said to him, you know that I love you. Shepherd my sheep, he told him. He asked him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved that he asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. 
Feed my sheep, Jesus said. I assure you, when you were young, you would tie your belt and walk wherever you wanted. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will tie you and carry you where you don't want to go. He said this to signify by what kind of death he, Peter, would glorify God. After saying this, he told him, follow me. Now, this might seem a little bit discouraging. I mean, Jesus is basically saying to Peter, you're going to die. You know, you're going to die. You're going to die as a martyr. But I believe that Peter was encouraged by this. Because earlier, he had promised Jesus, I'll die for you. But he had failed. And now Jesus was telling him, next time, you're going to go the distance. You are going to be faithful. You are going to love me to the point of death. You, this, I think that this whole conversation for Peter was a brand new start for him. I suspect in doing this miracle of the fish that maybe, maybe Peter was reminded of the fact he was so sinful the first time. And, and now that it had happened again, maybe he was thinking of it again. And he, again, I think was thinking, you know, God can't use me. Jesus was giving him a fresh start. I can still use you. You are not disqualified. And my point is this recommissioning is proof of the fact that he was forgiven and that would allow Peter, I think, to forgive himself. Now, many of you who have heard this story before or or you've heard people talk about this story know that there are different Greek words for love that are used in this passage. In our English reading of it, it, it looks like one word for love is being used. Do you love me? I love you. Do you love me? I love you. Do you love me? You know, along those lines. But in the Greek, in which the New Testament was written, there are different Greek words here. And I know many of you are familiar with this. In the Greek, it would have read something like this. Jesus said, do you love me? The word is agapao, or it's an agape type of love. Agape refers to a selfless, sacrificial, unconditional love. Agape love is the kind of love that God has for us. And so Jesus said, do you love me, agapao? Peter responded, yes, Lord, you know I love you. And he used the word phileo. Phileo is the Greek word for a brotherly love. You know, the, word, the uh, city, Philadelphia, is the city of brotherly love. And so, you know I love you. It's still the word love, but it's like more of a brotherly love. And so that's how Peter responded. Jesus then asked again, do you love me? Agapao. Peter responded again, yes, Lord, you know I love you. Phileo. Then the third time, Jesus changed the word. He said, do you love me? Phileo. At this point, it says Peter was saddened and he said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you, phileo. Now, I think, and many commentators believe that there's a little bit too much that's made of the the distinction here. Uh, Agape and phileo were used as synonyms in in Jesus' day, although there are some differences between them. But as I examine this, I think something's going on here. I haven't read this anywhere, but I think something is going on here that explains why Peter did not use the same word Jesus did. I think that he was afraid to proclaim agape love. He remembered that he had denied the Lord three times. He remembered he had proclaimed his his loyalty and then he'd, he'd failed. So Jesus comes up to him and says, do you love me agape? And Peter's thinking, I'd like to say I do, but I, I know I love you, phileo. 
Jesus asks him again, do you love me, agape? I think it was his failure that caused him to answer in this way. It's not that he did not want to love Jesus in an agape kind of way. I think he was aware of the fact that that maybe he wouldn't be able to live up to the kind of love that he was proclaiming. But Jesus, of course, was making the point, you will end up loving me in the end. You will go the distance. And three times Jesus said, if you love me then, feed my sheep, shepherd my, my people. And the fact that Jesus was willing to continue using him was proof that he was fully forgiven. You know, if someone says they forgive you, but they don't give you another chance, it would at least lead you to believe that maybe they haven't forgiven you. Now, I'm not suggesting that sometimes we extend trust to someone that's untrustworthy. Sometimes it needs to be rebuilt. I understand that. But if someone says, I forgive you, but then they're not willing to give you another chance, you would at least, I think, question whether or not you're really forgiven. Jesus, I think, removed all doubt. He restored him to this place of saying, you are the one that I'm calling to shepherd my people. He was gonna become the main leader of the church. And of course, after this conversation took place, within three weeks, the church was born and Peter preached to a crowd of thousands and thousands of people put their faith in Jesus Christ and he ended up leading this, this amazing church. So the church had grown so much and the nets, of course, did not break. I think it was Jesus' forgiveness of him that allowed him to forgive himself. God's forgiveness makes self-forgiveness possible. And I think God wants to do the same thing for us. Jesus said something amazing in John 3, 36. He said, therefore, if the Son sets you free, you really will be free. If the Son sets you free, you really will be free. If Jesus says you are forgiven, you are forgiven. If Jesus says you are free of the debt of your sin, you are free of the debt of your sin. And if God says you are forgiven, then who are we to say I'm not? Who are we to think that we're greater than God? God has said, I've taken care of this. I've removed your sins. Now, I have two applications here, depending on where you stand with God. First of all, some of you perhaps don't know whether or not God has forgiven you, and therefore you have trouble forgiving yourself. Maybe you're at this point where you're just not sure whether or not God has forgiven you. And the step that I would encourage you to take is to put your trust in Jesus Christ to be your savior. You know, there's nothing we can do to get right with God, at least according to what's taught in the pages of the Bible. I think most people have the wrong idea. I think most people think you get right with God or you can get to heaven by just being a good person. Or they think if they go to church or if they're devout or if, or if they go through certain, certain spiritual hoops or whatever, they think that they'll earn their way or their right to go to heaven. They'll merit eternal life. But it doesn't work that way. None of us are good enough. Heaven is a perfect place. We're not perfect people. God is perfect. We're not. We're sinners. And there's a gap between us and a holy God. And God knew we could not fix the problem. You know, even if we like go to church, for example, we're sinful people who go to church. Even if we do good deeds, we're sinful people who do good deeds. The problem is we need to get rid of that sin problem. We can't fix that. And this is why Jesus came into this world. God sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to come into this world to take on flesh and blood. Jesus was the son of God and God the son. And he lived a sinless life. That's why it was essential that he'd be divine. He lived a sinless life specifically so that he could die on the cross in our place and for our sin. 
the holiness of God required that justice be served against sin. God can't just sweep sin under the carpet and pretend that it doesn't exist. The justice of God requires that a penalty be paid and Jesus volunteered. He said, I'm willing to take upon myself the sin of the world. The sinless one took upon himself the sin of the world. And he died and was buried. But three days later, he rose again from the dead and it demonstrates that the payment that he made on our behalf was accepted by God. And we have some tremendous promises in the Bible that if we'll put our trust in Jesus Christ, that we will will receive the gift of eternal life and our sins will be forgiven. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son. Whoever believes in him, John wrote, will not perish but have eternal life. Whoever makes Jesus Christ the object of their trust. So if you've never done this, I encourage you to, to do this today. It's a simple matter of saying along the lines of, God, I know I've sinned and I can't fix it. And I need a deliverer. I need a savior. And I do believe you sent Jesus Christ to die in my place and for my sin. And then he rose again from the dead and I want to receive him as my savior. I want to put my trust in him. I welcome him to deliver me from my sin. And when you do that, you're given the gift of eternal life. Your sins are forgiven. And it's the starting point to beginning to forgive ourselves. If you're already a Christian here today, though, and you put your trust in Christ, I want to remind you that our sins have been removed from us as far as the east is from the west. In Psalm 103, 10 through 14, we read, he has not dealt with us as our sins deserve or repaid us according to our offenses. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his faithful love toward those who fear him, those who revere him, those who are his children. In verse 12, he says, as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. As the father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows what we are made of, remembering that we are dust. I love this section because we're not just forgiven of our sin. It says our sins are removed from us as far as the east is from the west so that when God looks at us, he sees us sinless and blameless because the sinless one took upon himself our sin so that we could be viewed as blameless in the eyes of God. And where God has forgiven us, we should be ones who are able to forgive ourselves. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I'm so grateful to you that you sent your son to be the savior of the world. We did not deserve that. We we did not deserve your amazing love for us. And I think of just the tremendous sacrifice that was made on our behalf. And I just ask you, Lord, today that if there are any that are watching this that have not come to a point of putting their trust in Jesus Christ to be their savior, that they'd welcome or receive him today that they would acknowledge, yes, I've sinned against you. I can't fix it. I need a savior. And they'd reach out to Jesus by faith and say yes to Jesus. And I pray for the rest of us as well as we grapple with the sin in our lives to realize you're able to use us, that you remember that we're flesh and blood, that we're just dust. And you know that we fail and yet you love to use people. In fact, many times you use our brokenness as a way to minister in greater ways. I just think of so many people in my lives who went through very difficult circumstances and sinned in some ways that they would consider to be very big and yet you use that thing 
to accomplish wonderful things through their lives and to help other people in the future. Help us to transform those things into something good because you can indeed use us regardless of what we've done. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.